0: Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and NA, member FDIC. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Anglo-Italian podcast. And in the great words of football striker Dion Dublin, Sandro is holding his face. You can tell from that he's got a knee injury. And that pretty much sums up this week's pod, as unfortunately Rory is unwell. So we wish him well and we hope to have him back for Monday's late night evening review. We'll be joined by myself, Andy, as well as Rory, hopefully, to review the Serie A action as well as the Premier League. So this week, unfortunately, we won't be going through any of the football It was a bit of a dross, wasn't it, unfortunately, with the international scene. However, you're in for a treat, guys. We've got a special episode lined up for yourself. And we continue our Way From Home series. Now, here we've got a fascinating individual, someone who finished his career as a goalkeeper at Tranmere Rovers before taking in countries like Bahrain, Australia, Malaysia, Thailand, even India, to name a few. And he coached the likes of Nicholas Anelka and Freddie Lundberg at Mumbai City in the Indian Super League. So without any waiting, let me bring you this interview brought to you by Rory interviewing the great Steve Darby. Enjoy.
1: Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If Only in Theatres, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news...
3: Welcome to the Anglo-Italian pod and it is the next part of our Away From Home series where we talk about players and managers who have left their home country to broaden their football horizons and see what the world has to offer in their career. This time we are going from Liverpool all the way to Laos with a few stops in between and we are joined by Steve Darby. Steve, how are you today?
1: Buongiorno, parlo bene Italiano un poco poco.
2: Oh, in
3: English, that's incredible.
1: My English is far better.
3: <laughs> <laughs> me too, me too. Um, so whereabouts are you calling us from, Steve?
1: Well, I'm now back back home in Liverpool. Uh, the reality is that my mum is getting old
3: and okay. it was time
1: to do the right thing. Uh, my daughter's at uh, A-level age, about mm. to go to university. So it was time to step back for a while, uh, Maybe later go back to Asia. I'd love to because, you know, it's, it's a drug. You miss football. Yeah. and you, know, you miss the dressing room. I don't miss the journalists. I don't okay. miss the administrators. But I yeah. miss the dressing room and the lads. And just mm-hmm. the feeling of football.
3: Nice. That's beautiful. So we're going to talk about how you got into football. And, like, who was the biggest influence on you in your life to, like, get you interested in football? Growing up in Liverpool, I'm assuming it's Liverpool or Everton, which side of the city are you on? Well, my
1: dad took me to both. He was a blue. He took me to Liverpool one week, Everton the next week. But the biggest influence, I think, in hindsight, and it probably was at the time, was Shankly. Uh, okay. Even though I was a you know just a kid, but the, the man was like God to me. Uh, yeah. Yeah, when he spoke, you listened. And later on, I was lucky enough to meet him. And I only wished there had been phones in those days, but there wasn't. I just sat in a dressing room with him, and it wasn't a conversation it was a monologue by him but i was (laughs) delighted just to listen to the blog
3: what was it like to meet someone because he is obviously like iconic not just in liverpool but in football in general was there like an aura around him like how did it feel to meet him
1: yeah you you hear the cliche don't meet your heroes so let Mm -hmm. you down he didn't uh that was you know certainly didn't and i was watching in those days you could walk into melwood and watch Mm -hmm. them train and so one day I went to watch Liverpool training. Shankly had retired. Um, and I saw him jogging around the pitch before the Liverpool arrived because they used to get changed at Anfield and come down to mm-hmm. Melwood then. I thought, this is a chance of a lifetime. I've got nothing to lose. You can either just say, get lost, son. Or uh, I said to him, morning, Mr Shankly. I'm about to go abroad uh, to do some coaching. Can you offer me any advice? And the first thing he said, and of course... <clears throat> Whenever you speak Shankly, you meet Shankly, you have to speak in his voice, don't you? And he's right, like, nice, yeah. son, yeah, first thing you must learn is to make tea. And I looked at him, I had no idea what he was talking about. So I had to make him a cup of tea, uh, right. <laughs> sat down in the dressing room with him, and he just talked to me. And you know, I wow. just wish I'd had a microphone. But it, you know, he was what I expected and more. And it's like, mm-hmm. I- I'll be honest, all the good players I've met, the great players, they've all been good blokes. Mm-hmm. you've had know, peter reed brian robson who i've worked with these two a uh, coach nicholas and elke all good good blogs you know it's the only few i've ever felt were a bit up themselves were the ones on the layer below who mm-hmm. thought they were a bit good but most of the top pros are really decent people
3: nice that's incredible so from that like did you always know you wanted to get into coaching or were you starting off as playing and then kind of how did you find your way into the football industry
1: no i just like 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 every other kid in liverpool wanted to be a footballer uh, mm-hmm. and i was lucky i was a 5 foot 9 14 year old goalkeeper so i got scouted by a few clubs and i went to various trials and i ended up playing in the youth youth team of Chelmsford. Only thing was, I was five foot nine at fourteen, but I was five foot nine and eighteen as well. <laughs> okay,
2: right.
1: So, and I still, I'm still five foot nine. So, <laughs> I was never going to make it. Uh, I mean, some people say it's you know they've had a severe injury. Mine was a severe lack of ability, you could probably say. <laughs> and so, one of the coaches there said to me, "Son, we've we've heard you're going to be able to do A levels." Mm-hmm. Which I was she said, do do your A levels, go to university, and see how it goes. In other words, you're not good enough, <laughs> which which, which he was dead right. It's a polite way of saying yeah, it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, So I I did the A levels and then I, I trained as a PE teacher in my sort of that was my second dream. Uh, if I couldn't be a footballer, be a PE teacher, mm-hmm. and it was quite good. I, I got my degree and I ended up playing semi pro and, and even Liverpool Sunday League, which was great and getting money in the boots. Uh, and so I sort of paid my way through uni by playing football. Uh, nice. So it was. I went there, and then basically I just wanted to play again. Uh, and then suddenly, one day I was. I was. A, I left college, got a job. I was in Portsmouth. <clears throat> I got a phone call from my old college lecturer a fellow called Merv Beck. Do you want to go to Bahrain and be a full-time coach, player coach? I didn't even ask about. I always remember I didn't ask about the money. I just said yeah. yes. You know, I, I'll swim there. And I couldn't believe it. I didn't even know where Bahrain was, to be honest. You know, because know that was pre-internet, and you realise how much before the internet we didn't know. Mm-hmm. So um, basically, I couldn't believe it. I, I got on a flight, and it was a business class. I thought this is paradise—a business class. You know, I got a meal on the plane, and the salary was five times what I was getting as a teacher. Wow. So it was that was even better. But the main thing was, it was every day playing football. And that's mm-hmm. you know playing and coaching. And I worked with a fellow called Jack Mansell, uh, who was hard but really good. Uh and what would happen, I was working with a team called Fire, and mm-hmm. then when the national team came into play, I'd go in as like an assistant coach, and that's where I learned a great deal about coaching. And then it was just from then on, wherever I went, it was you know, wherever's a contract. I went, I never said no, you know, if it was a, it was the right contract, I went and I got sacked from Bahrain because uh, Ayatollah Khomeini came in from Iran and they were going to, this is 79, and they were going to, they, they all thought Iran was going to wipe out Bahrain. It didn't happen, well, but they got rid of all the non-essential foreigners. So maybe my coaching was non-essential. <laughs> and uh, <clears throat> I came back to England and I got a. A letter, or, well, actually, I didn't get a letter, I got a telegram, which a lot of your know, younger people on uh, mm-hmm. listen to this won't know what a telegram is. But I got a telegram saying, Do you want to go to Tasmania and play? I, I actually thirsted, great, I've not been to Africa, <laughs> you know. And then, <laughs> and then, I, and then I suddenly re- looked on the map and uh found out where it was, said, yeah, you know, play a coach role again. So I thought, Great, I, I shall go. And I went off to Australia and I actually stayed there for 17 years, uh, so wow uh and then after that was was malaysia after it uh, was asia after that but uh, australia was a you know, a fantastic time that's where i sort of learned to coach i should say i'd done my english full badge and, yeah. someone, had, and someone had seen me on, on the coaching course and said look would you want to come to tasmania they were looking for english coaches to go out to work there and so i said yeah you know and i always remember i got off the plane in a place called launceston in northern tasmania and the it was you know, I, as you can tell, I was going to be a great success. There was one journalist there who also right. happened to be the photographer as well. <laughs> I, and he said to me, Can you come down the steps of the plane with your bag over your shoulder, juggling a ball? Right, I said, wow. I said, Mate, if I can do that, I'd be, it'd be Milan airport <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> or mid airport. And, um, I, I, and of course, and I, what I've learned, you always have to adapt to the culture. And mm-hmm. what I did was I, I always read the papers when I first arrived somewhere, just to you know get local news, look, feel the place. And I saw football scores, Australian football. It was Cooey 95, Penguin 87. And I thought, what a keeper I'll be here. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I'd never heard of Aussie rules football, you know, and it was just. I'm different. still
3: not sure what it is, I'll be honest oh, I'm it's still a magnificent sure
1: it it's a magnificent game, honestly, it really is. I played a little bit while I was there uh, wow. but it was a great game and it, once you get to know it, it, it it's a good game. it's like american football i I'd never seen American football really uh, yeah. but when I was in Bahrain, I only worked two hours a day. I had nothing else to do. so <clears throat> I taught myself Arabic because okay, uh, i'm wow, right. but I'm a literate. I can speak it, but I can't you know, read or write Okay. It. But yeah, yeah, yeah. The, only, the only TV was either Saudi TV at the time, which was a bloke with a beard reading the Koran, which not the best, uh, <laughs> or Aramco, which was non-stop American football. So I watched oh, wow. that all day and I got to, really got to enjoy American football. Again, it's been what I think the most uh, essential thing to any person, player or coach going abroad you know, adapt to the culture. Yeah. You're not going to change the culture. You know, mm-hmm. let's be blunt. You've got to adapt. And the best advice I was given in that area was uh, one of my managers that used the, the Asian term, the manager, like the CEO, said, you've got to be like bamboo in Asia. And right. I said, what, What's your message. There's not much bamboo in Anfield, believe me. You know, <laughs> he, he said to me, you've got to be able to bend. And okay. don't snap. Don't snap. And the snapping might be getting involved in match fixing mm-hmm. or letting the president pick the team and things like that. He said, bend a little bit. You know, you're not going to win all the time. Learn to fight what battle you can mm-hmm. win and when it's important. And he was dead right. You know, there's times when I've gone, okay, you know, and there's times when you're not going to win. My,
2: mm-hmm.
1: my international centre forward in, in Malaysia, he rang me up one morning and said, coach, I can't come training. I said, well, you're injured, you're sick. No, my mum said I've got to take her shopping. Right, okay. (laughs) And I I said, you're an international. I'm paying you a lot of money to play for us. You've got to train. He says, coach, you can find me. You can drop me. But if my mum says I'm going shopping with her, that's it. Well, some things are
3: international. You've got to do what your mum says, right? Some things are just international.
1: And that was exactly right. And I spoke to the team captain, who was a good bloke. He said, coach, it happens to us all. He Mm -hmm. said, you're not going to win that one. So I said, okay. And I lost that one, but I had to be a little bit like Bamboo and Bend. He came back the weekend, played well, scored as usual, and so you forget about it.
3: Nice. So with that first with that first experience in Bahrain, so you said you you're arriving to Bahrain in like 78, 79. 78, yeah, 78. Right? Yeah. What was like how big was the culture shock? And what were the first like things you had to learn when you arrived? Not just in terms of football, but like this is your first opportunity leaving the country and kind of stepping out on your own. What were the biggest lessons that you learned and the biggest culture shock?
1: Well, firstly, language. And mm-hmm. I've realized that language is essential because in 78, very few people spoke English. Mm-hmm. Uh, my players couldn't, so I had to have a translator. And that was similar in, in Vietnam in the year 2000. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, you had But I tried to learn the language everywhere I went. Uh, though it was amazing. We got off the plane, it was a couple of us, there was a car waiting and I said sorry to tell you lads I haven't got a license (laughs) oh don't worry about that coach (laughs) (laughs) and so a license appeared you know about a few days later with my picture in Oh so I just just taught myself to drive on the road there wasn't too many cars in those days but I mean another culture shock was we trained on sand Wow! Uh, and the the pictures were marked with oil Uh, but it was to be fair; it was good sand. You could play a decent game mm-hmm. on it. But I mean, we played the games in the stadiums on grass. Yeah. But, it, it, but it was a, you know, that was a c- culture shock. Uh, but I mean, and things like we had one game against the UAE, and there was crowd trouble. And the, over there, the police didn't mess about. It wasn't like in England; P- police came in with tear gas, and no. I was laughing my head off, thinking that's funny, watching these tear gas canisters <laughs> fly into the crowd. But then the wind changed.
3: Oh gosh. And, so,
1: and then I suddenly realised what tear gas does. <laughs> you know oh. And it doesn't just make you cry. You know, it's absolutely awful. So that was a bit of a culture shock. You know, although uh, well, I met Don Revy out there, he was uh, he, he 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 was coaching the UAE at the time, mm-hmm. and there's quite a few other English people like uh, Dave Mackay was out there. Okay. Uh, a fellow called Graham Williams stayed at my house now he played for Wales and it was West Brom fullback, but he told me, it's a remarkable story. He told me a a young long haired lad uh, from Ireland made his, for Man United made his debut against Graham Williams. He said, so I saw this skinny little long haired bloke. He said, I'll kick him. You know, welcome to football, son. (laughs) And, he said it was the biggest mistake he made because George best kicked him back <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> and then 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 turned him into knots he said yeah, i didn't know where to go he said i realized this boy was a bit special which obviously mm. you know he was yeah
3: that's that's incredible that's incredible so through coaching you were coaching in bahrain and then as you mentioned the kind of experience came up in australia and you you're kind of coaching there, kind of technical director type thing. What was your role there? And how difficult was it to develop a game in that country when you have Aussie rules, you have cricket, you have rugby that are so much bigger? Like, what was the standard of football like and how much was it developing at the time?
1: Well, I went as a player coach in Tasmania, which is probably the smallest state. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, I, you know, I, I was then offered a job of director of coaching uh, mm-hmm. so basically coaching coaches and going into schools so I was able to do that as well as play so in many ways it was it was lucrative in the sense that <clears throat> I was able to make a decent living doing this uh, and then eventually the reality of football is you either leave or you get sacked anyway
2: mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. <laughs> eventually
1: eventually I resigned one of the posts I had there I resigned because you do learn there's politics in football and no matter what, any any anyone who says politics and sport doesn't mix is so naive. You know, football politics is entrenched. You cannot. Every dressing room's got politics. You know, who mm-hmm. gets the right seat? Who gets the best cup of tea? Uh, who's the captain? You know, there's there's lots of politics in all all areas of sport. Uh, in this case, I, I I lost out to the politics because I mean, like political interference. I said, "Go and get stuffed." Uh, that wasn't quite the phrase I used, but yeah. it was similar to that. Um, so I ended up then moving across to the mainland of Australia. I worked for the Australian Sports Commission, mm-hmm. uh, and then I got went to the national body, like, like the FA,
2: yeah.
1: uh, and worked there for five years. Now that was where politics was first, football was second. Mm-hmm. Uh, but right. it, it was yeah, you know, I remember just before I got sacked one day, a fella came into me, the new president. I went through about five presidents while I was there. The new president came in and said to me, what's your management text? And I looked at him and I said, oh, sorry, I haven't got one. You know, you know he's talking about, he says, read Machiavelli, the prince. You know, being right. an Italian podcast, you should know that. Yeah. And I, I went out and got the prince and I read Machiavelli and that was perfect. He was spot on. You know, wow. so the Machiavellian text of football was, you know, and, and in those days, Australian Football, I still call it obviously football, was called yeah, soccer yeah. there. Uh was very uh ethnic based. You had Croatians, Italians, okay. Greeks, Serbs, Poles, and they loved football, they loved it. Mm-hmm. You know, I and, and although a lot of their children went on to play Aussie rules because because yeah, yeah. again, the culture wins. You, you
2: know,
1: mm-hmm. I and I, I might took the view that we were never gonna beat Aussie rules in Melbourne and Tassie
2: yeah. or
1: rugby league in, in Sydney. Uh, but in other areas, soccer w- was winning and is getting better and better. And, of course, one of the biggest factors now has been the uh, the, the Matildas, the female soccer.
3: Yes. Because yeah, yeah, yeah. that
1: is booming. You know, I coached the uh, Matildas back in the uh, late 80s, early 90s. And they were fantastic girls, mm-hmm. really good professional in everything they did except getting paid.
2: Right. You know, okay. But yeah, yeah, yeah. But
1: now they're getting paid. So uh but the, the the change in women's football is incredible. You know, the the physic the physical aspect, the you know the technical aspect, they can they can now knock a sixty yarder before it was mm-hmm. thirty, they can now yeah. all head a ball properly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, now they, they play you know distinct patterns, but the, the biggest thing is the power. You don't mm-hmm. get any overweight girls playing now, they're all great athletes.
3: Yeah, yeah. Well, be, I just think Well, that's it. And I think that happens, like, in all sports, regardless of, like, the the more professional it gets, the higher the standards become, right? You just have to be a better athlete. You have to be more in shape because the standards are rising. I think, like, and we've seen in Australia now with them just having an incredible World Cup, right? Getting through the group stage when nobody expected it. Um, Could you see the signs that there would be this much development in Australia? Because we know that when they're good at sports, they put money behind it and they are passionate about their sports. Could you see that they were, they were willing to kind of put this development into football? Uh,
1: the players are great in mm-hmm. Australia and there are some superb coaches as well. The problem, of course, appears to be the administration. Mm. It just hasn't caught up with the quality of the players. I mean, I was dealing with players like uh, Mark Viduca. Wow. Ned Zellich, yeah, yeah. Frank Farina, Paul Ocon, those two lads mm-hmm. have still played in Serie A. Uh, I mean, great players. Schwartzer went to the EPL, you know, Cahill and yeah, things yeah. like this. So there's never a doubt to me about the quality of the player, never a doubt about the quality of the coaching they were getting from foreign coaches and local coaches as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the danger, what well, it still is, it would appear to be the administration. They just yeah. seem to be... you know, a lot of it's good-hearted, but there just seems to be such polarised opinion on mm. how to do things in Australian soccer that I, I can't see the light at the end of the tunnel. I just cannot. Um, you know, yet in the women's game, that seems to have evolved a little bit better, maybe less entrenched views.
3: Oh, okay. Yeah, because there's just been a huge like argument in Australia about the crowd violence. At, I think it was Melbourne City, right? And how yeah. the how the authorities dealt with it and how they kind of... I've seen a lot of like Australian soccer fans saying the soccer fans are being persecuted more than rugby fans would or, cr- or cricket fans would. It feels oh, like there's a bit doubt. of a yeah. culture shift there.
1: Yeah, without a doubt. You know, the, the Aussie, you know, still pro- thinks it's a game for wogs.
3: You mm-hmm. know, yeah, I mean, yeah.
1: Johnny Warren wrote a book, I think it was called Wogs, Puffers, and Sheelers. Mm-hmm. You know, so that was what the, you know, the, the football was. But I mean, but when it comes to the World Cup, when it comes to the national team, that's when that's it tends to be forgotten. So club level, it's a problem. National team, if Australia is doing well, they get behind it. You know, it doesn't matter who you are. you know, the, the Aussie Rule. I mean, and the thing is, it's not the, the players, the cricket, the cricketers, and the and the Aussie rules players and the league players are real soccer fans as well. Yeah. At yeah, the yeah. top level, you know, Steve War. I remember seeing him play. He played for Australian schoolboys football. Wow. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, and you know, he loved the game and things. And and there was quite a few uh, Aussie rules players who could have played soccer easily. But the main thing was to be honest, there was more money in Australian rules in the eighties. Now Mm. it's different. Now the money's getting a little bit better for Australian soccer players.
3: Nice. And then after Australia, this is where you get your first kind of um, managerial role and you head out to Malaysia um, so, this is around 98, and you take over Johor FC. Now, this is where you win both the league and cup, Peter, as manager. Um, how did it feel in your first management job, your first full management job of a club, to get some silverware? Um, how did that feel, and how was that as a first experience in management?
1: Well, basically, I'd been coaching in the National Soccer League in Australia, a team called Sydney Olympic,
3: mm-hmm. which
1: <clears throat> was fascinating. You know, it's a Greek-based club. It was just a daily chaos, but it was happy chaos. You know, probably a good a good training ground for Asia. But what well, was really enjoyable. But I've been sacked, like, and that's that's not an insult. There's a there's a vast queue of good managers have been sacked from Sydney Olympic, uh, and I got a phone call from my mate Ron Smith. Who was in Johor for another team um, in Johor, and he said "Look, do you fancy coming to Malaysia for six weeks?" He says Johor could go down. And if they go down, that's like a disaster. If you can keep them up, that'd be great. Come for six weeks. I went across. I was again. There's luck in the game in football. Believe me. I had two Aussies there who I knew in, mm-hmm. in the in the in the Johor team. Fellow called Darren Stewart and Milan Blagojevic, both Australian internationals. And they said to me, "Dabs, it's the good lads, the good teams. We shouldn't be where we are."
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so
1: he said, "We just need organising and." And what was happening was the, the management was interfering with the local coach. It was making them train like seven days a week, two days, oh. twice a day. So I said, look, we cut it back. We cut back training. We suddenly, for some unknown reason, all the injuries got rid of. <laughs>
2: <You> know, <laughs> I, wonder, I
1: wonder why that happened. But uh, <clears throat> and what happened was we ended up going on an unbeaten run. We rescued relegation. But that mm-hmm. was a major thing. But... What Ron didn't tell me, probably didn't know, we were still in the cup, and wow. we weren't even considered to you be know, because all the big boys were in the cup as well from the, the other division, so we just kept on going, and then we ended up winning the FA Cup and we were the only side ever to win the FA Cup from the second division. Wow uh, and again, what what the advice I get lots of people writing to me for advice, and I say, well, if you're in Asia, there's only one piece of advice that's win." Okay right <laughs> you've got to win because there's no long term is next week right you know, so and if you don't win next week you you're in a crisis mm-hmm. then then you win and you're a great coach again but you're not the week after if you lose so you've got to win as often as you can and forget I hate these words forget this philosophy and this project you know it's all about winning okay uh, so and if you do that you'll get a better contract and then once you get your contract, you and, and I tell younger coaches, winning is political power.
2: So okay.
1: If you win and you're going on a run of about five or six weeks, suddenly you may be able to get the plane to the next away game I rather know. than the twelve-hour bus trip.
0: When yeah, you're losing,
1: yeah, yeah. a bus turns up. When you're winning, yeah. the plane gets on invited, or you might be able to buy thirty new footballs. You know, on mm-hmm. uh, all things like this. So. Um, it, it really is a, a political aspect is winning, mm-hmm. but you've got to win. And luckily we did, because eventually you'll get sacked. Yeah, and, and then after three years in Johor, I got sacked.
2: Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah.
1: I actually think in this case I got sacked for the wrong reason, but that's you know, it wasn't like losing games again, it was the political aspect. Okay, you, you I learned again from mistakes that I made lots of mistakes as, there's certain people you're allowed to upset, and there's yeah. other people you're not. <laughs> you know, yeah, I, that's often
3: the way, right? Yeah.
1: Yeah. And I upset the wrong person, and I was gone. You know, in some countries, it's the administrator. Mm-hmm. In other countries, you don't upset the journalists okay. because they'll, you know, they'll murder you. Uh, yeah, Thailand yeah. was that example. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, I had a journalist just literally writing pure lies about me every day. Uh, and, and how, do do you,
3: how do you deal with that? Like when someone's doing that and you know, like it happens in the UK as well, right? I, happen, I think it happens in every paper all over the world, but when it's written about you, is it best to just ignore it? And do you try and take them on? Like, how do you deal with something like that? Well,
1: you, if you're in a foreign country, sometimes it's lucky because I can't read Thai. <laughs> well, uh, that's true, So yeah, it does yeah. help. Yeah, you know, and I can't understand Thai when they speak quickly. You mm. know, so... Uh, that was a lucky aspect it's worse when you can read the language believe mm-hmm. me because no matter what you say players look coaches yes. look yeah, yeah, yeah. they do yeah. read it they you know they see that they only got a five and not an eight off the of a journalist mm-hmm. who does this journalist think he is that was brilliant you know and <clears throat> they do read believe me it happens mm-hmm. so uh if you can ignore it well done but I, I mean, what I've been lucky as is c- c- because of the age factor, I didn't have to hit social media too much. It was only mm-hmm. coming in near the end. And social media has been horrific for footballers, right. believe yeah, me, yeah, because yeah. you've got loonies out there. You know, there yeah. are people out there who should not be allowed near a computer. Yeah. You have a keyboard license, you know, and uh, <laughs> they, they are writing just pure fiction.
2: Mm-hmm. But
1: Thing is some of them one of the clubs I was in uh there was we, we ended up one guy with two specific incidents one guy was calling all my players unfit and lazy so wow. we had a player who was very good on i.t you know so he we found him and he was about 200 kilos this bloke. that was the first <laughs> thing <clears throat> and then another one was con- constantly abusing my tactics and right. telling me where I was wrong and all this and the problem was my president was br- reading it and saying to me, why didn't you do this? This fellow said you should do this. Oh. We traced him. He was 14.
3: Right. <laughs> you know? Brilliant.
1: And not only, and then they found him, he was telling Jose Marina what to do as well. <laughs> so uh, you know, my, my centre-forward, shall we say, encouraged him not to do it again.
3: <laughs> you know? I think that's fair. I think that's yeah. absolutely fair. Yeah. So when, when you come into a club, you talked about like winning is a currency and it's the only thing that matters. Would you say that, like, do, do you have a particular, like, a style that you try to stick to, or is it just make the most of the players that you have there?
1: Well, reality is in Asia, there's, there's very little transfer market uh, mm-hmm. in Southeast Asia. It's basically you have the players you, okay. you're given. And in some cases, again, hindsight, you shouldn't come in after the president signed all the players because some of them are great, some of them know what they're talking about, others are clowns. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I had one wake me at three o'clock telling me we sh- he told me the team which I should be picking next week. And I said, Look, I guarantee you we'll get beat three nil. Right, said, why do you, how do you know that? I said, Well, you've got us playing. Four four three, which means we'll have 12 players on the pitch. <laughs> and I said, and also one of them suspended anyway. So uh which you know you should have realized <clears throat> he's got another yellow card. I said, so we'd lose 3-0. And to be fair to him, he said, Oh, I've been stupid, haven't I? I said, Well, you said it, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And all but again, you're buying people, not just players. Mm-hmm. I was in one club where they bought the foreigners in and Couple of them were good foreigners. What mm-hmm. a guy called shauki uh, who played for Egypt in the Confederations Cup, wow. scored against Brazil. Played for Middlesbrough <laughs> in the EPL. Great player, great mm-hmm. professional as well. Top class in everything he did. Uh, but we also had a couple of us, and one of them was match fixing. Wow! Uh, and that's a huge another, That's a, a, a whole issue on its own, match fixing. But mm-hmm. it was match fixing, and that destroyed the whole. You know, the uh, fabric of the club. You know, and mm-hmm. I mean, I've done well in some most places, but other times I've failed. And I, in this particular club, I failed. And you tend to blame other factors, obviously, when you fail. But one was the the uncomfortable selection of foreigners, shall we say, okay. and the other was down to match fixing. Mm-hmm. uh That was you, know, you, you can't beat it.
3: No, and uh, in what? So how? How did you find out that that was happening? And was it the kind of thing of like he was just <clears throat> not scoring chances, he was trying to give away goals? what like how did you discover and what do you how do you deal with that?
1: Right. Well, I was totally naive when I came to Malaysia mm-hmm. uh, about match fixing because I played in Australia and England, where it does go on and it's yeah. going on still, even mm-hmm. you know in England, there's a if you read a book by Declan Hill called the Fit the Fix, yeah wonderful book. And that tells you all about how it was going on in England years ago, you know, and probably to an extent has happened even now in the lower yeah. leagues. I, I don't think it's happening in the Premier League now because it costs too much to, mm-hmm. to bribe a player. But in the lower really, leagues, yeah, lower leagues, yeah, and it's spot fixing as well. Like who gets mm-hmm. the first throw in,
3: you yeah. know, and
1: thing would get a yellow card in the second half. You know, all, all these type of things go on. But the first I first discovered it, I was walking off the pitch in a game for Johor. And the the foreigner on the other on the other team team walked past me and said, Coach, you're gonna win 2-0. And so I said, How do you know? He says, They don't think I can speak Malay, but I can. You know. <clears throat> so we 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 scored in the 84th and the 89th minute, which basically meant we we didn't have time to score a third. And we yes. didn't need to. Because we didn't need to because 2-0 was enough. Mm-hmm. And it was a t- and what it was was a spread fix. So they were going to okay. lose by two goals. Uh so they weren't going to score because they, they weren't going to, simple as that. And the game was 2-0, everyone was happy. Yeah. You know? <clears throat> and then so that and when you're winning, you don't think fixing exists. When you're winning, you think you're a great coach. If yeah. You but uh, there was one game where we were two-one down away from home. Uh and that have been a fair result to be honest. I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have moaned about two one.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: About, about five minutes to go, corner comes in. My goalkeeper knocks it into his own goal. Okay, I've done worse, you know. Right. So three one. <clears throat> Last minute, thirty yard shot. Whoa! It must have dipped and swerved. We got beat four one. Okay, I watched the video the next day because, and for the younger ones, videos those little square things. <laughs> yeah, you know, I watched the video the next day. And I suddenly realized the ball didn't swerve. My goalkeeper was swerving. Yeah. Wow. So I called in my captain, who was a decent lad. I said, come on, what happened? Tell me. He said, Well, we tried to win, because if they win, they got the bonus. Okay. Yeah. He says, but we, we we had an agreement that if we were going to lose, we were going to lose by three goals because they'd all put a bet on. Where the bet was if they lost by three goals, they got the equivalent of their bonus. So they were going to come back, no matter what, with a bonus.
3: <clears throat> so, and is, is there any way? There's nothing you can do to, no. to stop you that. It? Like you, you need the yeah. authorities or your owner to back you up, but they have no interest in doing that, I imagine. Well,
1: I, I naively said to one of my players, because I, I, I rang a, a player once and I said to him, and he, he was a Chinese lad, a Chinese mm-hmm. Malaysian, and he was smart. I said, come on, how does it work? Because I was fascinated how this works. Yeah. He said, Well, they they ring you up, they know how much money you're on because yeah. everywhere leaks, everyone knows how much <laughs> money each other's on. He said, So if you're paid a thousand a month, just for example, he says, You this bloke will offer you three thousand a month. And you say, No, 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 I'm not gonna do it. And he just put he just gently says, Does your mum still go to Tesco's on Saturday morning? Or does your little sister yeah. still go to that primary school? Doesn't say anything bad.
3: Yeah,
1: but (laughs) he lets you know
3: that he knows. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, And so
1: and so, I said to him, "Why didn't you go to the police?" Well, he burst out laughing. Of course, he said, "Because he says they're getting their cut down the line. Everyone gets a cut in these deals, and so you're not going to. That's not going to happen. So I realised that was it wasn't going to happen. And you know, people say to me, "How do you stop it?" Well, the only way you can stop it is. Pay your players on time. That's okay. You'll never stop it all the time because yeah. there are corrupt people in football. Mm-hmm. In every country, there are people who are greedy and have no time for them.
2: Yeah, but yeah. At the other
1: extreme I used to think it was black or white. It's not. There's gray, a large amount of gray.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: part of the gray area is like if you haven't been paid for three months, you've got two kids who are starving and you're living on noodles, and someone offers you to pay your three months' wages. You think, well, hey, you know, or as, as one bloke put it to me once, what happens if your kid coach needed an operation? What would mm-hmm. you do? Yeah, and yeah. I suddenly thought, you're right. I'd just say it's only a game, you yeah, know. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, now f- I can honestly put my hands on my heart and say I've never took money. and never mm-hmm. done it. But I've had death threats. I, okay. When I was in Singapore, I was I was used to get rang up by this bloke, and. I, I did report to the police thing because Singapore is quite a, a strict country. Yeah. And they said to me, the police, we can't contact him because he's ringing on a fax phone. And right. I, didn't, I didn't know that if you ring from a fax, it can't be traced.
3: Oh, so wow. anyway, okay.
1: how we saw, and he was threatening me. I had to drop my star striker. I had to lose this game, blah, blah, blah. And I told one of the sponsors, who was a, a Chinese guy,
2: mm-hmm.
1: he said, leave it to me. He said, so when he rang next time, I gave the sponsor my phone. And he just spoke quite a lot in Hokkien, a a slang version of Chinese. And I heard a few names mentioned. And I suddenly realized all he'd done was he'd mentioned people higher up the food chain.
2: Right. (laughs) Okay. Never
1: never got another phone call again. Wow. So that's how, that was one way of stopping it. Yeah, (laughs) no, that definitely (laughs) works. If it works. But." I mean, it's, it's a fascinating thing. We, we were, I was sitting on the bench from some, we, we'd gone seven, two up
2: mm-hmm. and
1: yeah, we were due, due to win anyway. I knew that, you know, we, we were a good side in Singapore. Uh, and I, I suddenly I saw about 400 people leaving and I said, why are they all leaving? And my assistant, and I, and I tried to get locals all the time. Okay. said to me, well, there's nine goals coach and it doesn't matter what happens after nine goals. Uh, you, you pay out on a it's like a bell curve okay. of, of bets. So the ninth goal went in, and so they all left because they all knew they would got their money. And it, I found out later, the opposition goalkeeper had got nine goals at twenty eight to one. Uh, now we were going to win anyway. We knew yeah. that they knew that, but he just made he put a two he put two grand on. He got fifty six grand. You know, it worked out sixty-six grand or something. He paid a year's salary for one game. Wow! Uh,
3: So this
1: is this goes
3: on. Yeah. So this is in Singapore, right? And is this when you? This was when you were in charge of Home United. Yes, it was. And I think this is this is a spell that was really, really successful for you. So (laughs) this is. You took part in the Asian Champions League, took the Singaporean team as far as a Singaporean team have ever been in the Asian Champions League. There was two players that jumped out at me just because of their numbers. Um, In one season, Perez de Oliveira, 37 goals, Egmar, 29 goals, and Indra, 26 goals. You scored 104 in the league, conceding 42. That is some pretty exciting attacking football. Like, How was it? And how was that season? It seems incredible.
1: Well, you often read about people saying, oh, they're great coaches.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: You're a great coach and you've got great players. <laughs> okay. It really helps, believe me. <laughs> <laughs> and I had two Brazilians mm-hmm. and a local lad uh, who could score. Uh, mm. Perez was a magician. He could do right. anything with a ball. Absolute magician. And I had one, again, a committee man Say to me, Oh, this Perez is no good, he's too slow. I said, Look, if he wasn't slow, you'd be watching him on telly. <laughs>
2: yeah. it playing
1: in playing in Europe and England or Italy or Spain. I think yeah. that good, but he just wow. didn't have great pace.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: That's why he couldn't make it at the top level, you know. Mm-hmm. But he had everything else. Wow. Ekmar would have suited League Two in England.
3: Okay. Big,
1: strong. It was a bit like the Brazilian player called Hulk. You know,
3: nice, yeah, 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 yeah.
1: Big, powerful lad, and he used to batter people. And Indra was the quickest player I've ever worked with. I've only, you know, I used to do a lot of measures with support, uh, light gates, so it wasn't just opinion; it was based on light gates. And the only player I've seen as quick was a fellow called Ned Zelic, who played mm-hmm. in the Bundesliga and and League One, uh, an Australian lad. Uh, Indra was like lightning, but Indra was amazing. He couldn't do anything else except score.
2: <laughs> yeah, you know? right. Okay. And,
1: and I always remember there was there was two two cup finals. Uh, we we won two cups while I was there. The cup mm-hmm. final in two years. Indra scored the winner in both, wow. and in the both times, I was thinking of taking him off. <laughs> I had a boy warming up in the first cup final, <laughs> and I said, "Look, Indra, because he does nothing,
3: mm-hmm. but
1: suddenly explodes." And he was one of these players who. Not only scored, he scored important goals. Nice. Now, that's, I mean, that sounds stupid, but if you're winning 6 0, you'll get players who'll score the seventh or the eighth. Mm -hmm. But if it's 0 0, you know, in a cup final, you want someone who makes it 1 0. And Mm -hmm. Indra had that ability, you know, to to, to do that. Um, Smashing, I mean, and again, the dressing room there was, I was dead lucky as well. Two locals a fellow called Subramanian and Adi uh were like captains.
2: Mm-hmm. I didn't
1: have a single problem the whole three years there. They dealt with the problems first in the dressing right. room. And I don't know what they did, but they did it. And we nice. never had a discipline problem whatsoever. And and how we used to do it was I, I had a good, uh, I'll call him CEO, uh, like a team manager, they call him over mm-hmm. there. And he said to me, Steve, your CEO on the pitch I'll be ceo off the pitch it's a great no problem so he dealt with the contracts and all that and now we used to do things was, because we won a lot i would say to the players look we had three subs i will make sure we use every sub in every game so that 14 lads got the bonus not okay. just 11. and i used to rotate the 14th player mm-hmm. so that everyone didn't you know everyone got a bonus some stage and that yeah. helped cement the sort of like the unity because they all know that this sub was coming on, so that he got he got looked mm-hmm. after, because one day you might have, they might have been in the same boat, you know. Mm-hmm. So it it was a good atmosphere, uh, and that in many ways it, the only problem we ever had was we had a salary cap, okay, uh, and we kept to it because we were the police team, uh, right. And I, I always remember Dwight York's agent rang me up and said, oh, Dwight York's heard about you. He wants to play for you. Now, when he said that, I knew he was lying for a start. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because well, he hadn't heard of me. End of the story. So I said, okay, yeah, I mean, I love agents. Oh, you mm-hmm. know, you ever want a good laugh? Listen to an agent. <laughs> uh, yeah. So the, he said to me, I, you know, how much money have you got? So I said, look, I've got this much money. He said, oh, Dwight could do with a bit more. I said, mate, that is the amount for the month for the squad, the 16 players. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's not for Dwight. That was the squad yeah. money. And he said, oh, and it's funny, Dwight York didn't want to know me after that. No, yeah, all <laughs> yeah. of a sudden, all yeah, of a sudden. Yeah. Strange I mean, that. I mean, the, the inequalities of, of wealth in Asia are incredible. The, the best example was Coach Lau in the World Cup, and we yeah. played Korea. Well, we didn't play Korea. We were on the same pitch. you mm. know <laughs> right. and, uh, <clears throat> and, and one of my lads was a, sm- a smart lad, uh, and I actually in the in a World Cup qualifier, I had to write to his boss to get him off at twelve o'clock on match day. Yeah. <laughs> he was an accountant. You know? <laughs> and so on match day, he went to work in the morning in a World Cup qualifier and came in the afternoon, you know, to, 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 to for that for the game. That's but incredible. he actually worked out that when we played Korea, Son Hun Ming who played,
2: mm-hmm.
1: he he was on more than my whole team put together for the year.
3: Jesus. Jesus. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. It's something I kind of wanted to touch on because even in yeah. the semi like you made the run in the Asian Champions League yeah. with Home United and you got to the semi-final and you did really you were doing really well. There was an incredible quarter-final beating Olympic Beirut 5-4 yeah. on aggregate. But then in the semi-final you came up against Al Jaish in Damascus and yeah. it seemed like was it just a sudden step up in finances and level once you get there?
2: Well,
1: what happened was because in Asia, the seasons are different.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Because And there has to be because of things like uh, monsoons, yeah. Ramadan, all sorts. Mm-hmm. You don't just have a normal season. They played, Al Jazeera played the group stage. They were a good side. Mm-hmm. They played the group stage, then got through to the knockout stage, and it was their next season.
2: Right, so all the, okay. Uh,
1: and as they had then qualified for the knockout stage, they basically brought the whole national team in. So we ended okay, up playing, right. the Syria, we played the Syrian national team and oh and the 6-1 was, Hey, fair enough. Not yeah. a, not a, not a, but I also then learned that you can get messed about. We went mm-hmm. to Syria and in the contract for the AFC, you have to supply 12 balls. They okay. did, but they were all deflated. <laughs> and I said, where's the pump? Oh no, it's not in the contractor pump. So we had, couldn't pump the balls up for the first training session. We had to go out and buy, and of course, where can we buy a pump? You're not going to tell us. <laughs> no are one's
3: going to sell you one. Yeah,
1: yeah. yeah. We went to the hotel, which looked like it had been bombed in the war. You oh, know. God. And uh, we ordered chicken. We got beef. Right. Now that that's not a problem too much, except that I had Hindus on the side who yeah. couldn't eat beef. We ordered pasta. We got rice. <sighs> uh, the butters were turning up late. And honestly, it was just everything possible to upset you.
0: Mm-hmm. You know,
1: and it, it was nonstop. I mean, now, to be honest, we, in the quarterfinal, we played in Lebanon. Mm-hmm. So that country was at war. Uh, and we literally, we were taken up to a hotel in a place called Tripoli, which I, we first thought was Libya. But, you know, there's right. a Tripoli in Lebanon.
2: Yeah.
1: And there was bullet holes in the stadium walls. Jesus. And there were had- guards on the gate. And these boys had real guns. You know, and yeah. the monstrous guns, and we were just smiling and nodding. And we were told we wouldn't recommend going out at night, mm-hmm. the hotel. and even Perez didn't go out, and Perez was a rascal for going out at <laughs> night. Yeah, I won't, have, I won't tell you why, but I mean, he <laughs> yeah. we was successful on and off the pitch,
2: Perez,
3: yeah. and how. How difficult is it to get the players like and yourself to concentrate on just the game when you're in a... Because you are making trips to war-torn countries or countries where they're trying to make it as uncomfortable for you as possible. How diff, How do you get them to concentrate and how difficult is that to do? Well,
1: most countries are, are okay. Syria was different. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, and we had to win Syria in Ramadan. And I had a Thai player a few years later playing for me called Sudi Suk-Somkit smashing lad right so we we went we went I, I tried to take the players out as well to see the mosques to see the the souk to try and get a bit something a bit of culture as well because a chance of a lifetime to see some of these places yeah. we're walking down through the middle of damascus and sooty Suk comes comes screaming down to me coach i found a fish and chip shop <laughs> and it's the middle of ramadan at lunchtime and I'm going, oh, no, Sutty, will you just put it away? You know, you know hide the chips, do you? <laughs> <clears throat> yeah. And he didn't guess because Sutty didn't care about anything. He just wanted to play football and score goals. Yeah. Right. But, um, I mean, and again, you have unusual things. we played in the Maldives. Now, everyone thinks the Maldives is wonderful. Well, mm-hmm. it, it is wonderful if you're on the islands. Where, right. To be fair, home United, they used to put us on the island and then because the actual island of Mali where you play isn't that nice. It's quite a you know, heavily populated place. It's mm-hmm. totally dry and things like this. Um, so we were on the island. But that meant we had to get a water taxi to train in. We found out two players got seasick, which they didn't know because they'd never been in a boat before. <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> right. Okay. So there's, there's things you just don't learn on your, on your English full badge. Mm-hmm.
3: <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. Well, that's it. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so in Malaysia, you then continue in Malaysia and you take over at Perak as well. Um, and here you also have two goal scorers that put up mad numbers. Manju Keita, winning two golden boots, scored 50 goals in 75 games from what I could see. Um, were you fortunate with the strikers you got? Are you good at coaching strikers? What do uh, you put that down to?
1: Again, I, I inherited Manju. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had two two foreigners there. Uh, I inherited Abdullah Toure. Uh, from mm-hmm. Burkina Faso and Kita from Kita Manju from Guinea. Troure was fantastic. He spoke five languages fluently, wow. was training to be a doctor, uh, the abs, uh, the absolute model professional and his opening line to me was coach never trust an African
2: okay, right <laughs> I <laughs> right.
1: Said, I said I can't say that. you know he said hey coach, you're white, you can't say it I'm black, I can say it okay. <laughs> And he said most of all, don't trust a nigerian or a cameroonian he said they're the worst of the lot and i'm going what you know i mean and he gave me great example and when we had trials one year i used to invite Keita and abdullah to sit next to me so that they mm-hmm. you know what their opinion was important again culturally they wanted to bring the right person in to be a okay. you know, foreigner and i they said hey that lad's a decent player i said yeah he is you know i said i looked at the paper his name was Preston McDonald. Now that's a well-known right. African name. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and I and Abdul turns around to me and says, That's not Preston McDonald. I know Preston McDonald. <laughs> he says, Let me sort it out. He went to the dressing room. We come back because yeah, it's not him, coach. He bought the passport.
2: Wow. So
1: he had bought the passport. I mean, and then, and then when you realize why, I mean, Keith Amand used to tell me, he says, Keita was always broke in the third week of the month.
3: Okay.
1: I said, Keita, I'm paying you good money. You're the highest yeah. paid. Why are you spending it all? What on? He said, oh, I'm sending it back home. And he said, yeah. when you're in Africa, he said, you don't understand this coach. You're English. He says, but he said, you might have a two or three family members. He said, I've got about 200. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I want to go back. I've got to buy them all presents yeah. and I've got, I'll buy my mom my house. And, it was a different culture shock. Mm-hmm. That was again. I learned that you you, you can't you know, you can't dictate why things happen. Yeah. Uh, my my view of poverty is not his view of poverty.
3: Yeah, yeah, you yeah. Know,
1: it was. Uh, but with Keita, he was just a natural worked mm-hmm. worked worked. I mean, it, it is amazing how you. He, he eventually left because he wanted to get more money, which I I understood entirely. Yeah. I good luck to you. He went off to Brunei, um, and then. I replaced him with a South American. Uh, it was a good player, but he made a mistake. And again, this is where the word culture comes in. Keita was a Muslim, and we right. were playing in front of sixty thousand Muslims every week. Keita would score, and he would do the Muslim sign okay. to the crowd. Carlos scored in his first game, ran to the crowd, and crossed himself.
3: Uh,
2: oh yeah. no! So, you
1: know, <laughs> it was like a stunned silence. You know, I, I mean. It was just, it just the culturally did the wrong thing, you mm-hmm. know, yeah. uh, and he was never accepted like Keita and and Carlos was a bit of a more of a South American Indra type, didn't do much work, but okay. scored, Whereas yeah. Keita would work and work and work with the team and do everything. The only thing I wouldn't do with Keita, he asked for a goal bonus. Right, I said, no, I said, because you'll never pass the ball. I know right. you I said you'll you'll want to take the corner and score and come in and, and head the crossing you know I said so no I said you get a team bonus but you're not get a you know uh, you are not get that bonus. but I um, I was lucky I got a couple of great south Americans uh mm-hmm. from Chile uh it was they were really good pros that they came along um Mario Mario Bedos was his name played in the Chilean firstly Top professional, I had a veteran Kukoc, a sweeper, uh, a Croatian guy, great player. He got a concussion in one game. We took him to the hospital, did the right thing. He's in Perak. Yeah, he yeah. got a he got a brain scan. He said, "I'm sorry, but he's got a brain tumor." And we went, and we just went, "What?" And he didn't know. And it, it was only oh they only God. spotted it on look. He had an upper op- brain operation. It turned out to be a cyst. It was just water. It wasn't malignant. Wow. And he ended up coming back and playing season after, you know, because he wow. said, this club, the Parak club was great. The manager was great, or the president. They looked after him. They got him the best hospital, the best treatment, you know, and so he said, no, I'm staying loyal to this club, you wow. know.
3: That's incredible, and I think in times like that, it's really obviously incredibly important to know that the, the, the company you're working for effectively mm. is able to look after you and willing to do the right thing. From Perak, I want to jump forward a little bit because you kind of talked about it a little bit, and I'm going to talk about <laughs> Mumbai City. So, here you were working with alongside Peter Reed, I believe. Yep, Peter Reed, and yep. you kind of alluded to it earlier. Nicholas and Elka, and I think Freddie Lundberg arrived. Yep. Um, so yep. how when you have big players like that coming into a league where there may be the marquee signings, the marquee players for that league, how how do you motivate them? Because maybe those players, like they're often accused of just wanting a payday or they're just there for the money. Is that an issue? And if it is, how do you deal with it?
1: Well, this was in the ISL, the Indian Super League. It was the first year because before it had been just the I-League and Mm -hmm. I coached in the I-League for Mohan Bagan. Who actually used to get a hundred thousand crowd wow. when they played East Bengal? Incredible! I did
3: see their stadium was one hundred yes. and twenty thousand. Yes,
1: and you insane. know there are a hundred thousand, and believe me, you know it's mm-hmm. is intense there. You go the next game somewhere else, and there might be three thousand there away right. from home. But if you're in Calcutta, Calcutta was was the home. I mean. That was a a completely different entity in terms of politics. Mm -hmm. That was like I discovered the caste system there, okay, how bad that is, and all sorts. So, and uh, from day one, half the committee wanted me out, right? Because the other half of the committee had got me in, the other half they hated that half got wanted me out. Oh, it was but three months of hell, yeah. Yeah. But anyway, yeah, you learn. So, anyway, I went to Mumbai, and that was different, superbly ran, ran by top professionals, Mm -hmm. accountants, lawyers. The front man was a, a Bollywood superstar, wow. uh, and, and when they're superstars in Bollywood, they really are. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. So I, I got a call, and from a bloke who'd known me it, when I went to you know in Calcutta and he said to me, "Look, would you like to coach this team?" I said, "Yeah, great." He told me the money. I said, "Well, yes, without a <laughs> doubt," because the money was silly in those days. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he said, "The only thing is, you'll have to bring a big name with you."
3: <laughs> okay.
1: So I said, Oh, Engelbert Humperdinck.
3: Yeah, there we go. That'll do. <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
1: Which, of course, didn't went straight to the keeper. I had no idea what I meant. So I said, Look, I'll get you someone. So I rang up uh Peter Reed, uh, because I'd been with him in Thailand, and I said, Do you want to come to this? This is how much money? He said, Yep, I'll be there. So we came over, and as we got there, two weeks into the the like, pre-season. Again, this is where again the culture of that league was. The president sport, the players. Okay. The president comes in all excited. I've got you, Nicholas and Elka, and I went. I'll be honest. I went. Oh no!
3: no yeah, the, his reputation isn't great. <laughs> right? Oh,
1: he's just been suspended as well for doing that. Mark doing and the his celebration. West yeah. 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 I learned mm. then, and I've I've said this many a time now. Don't believe the image. Mm-hmm. The reality compared to the image is totally different yeah. exemplified by this fella he was a model pro uh, if you said be there at 9 he was there 10 2 okay if you said wear one pink sock one orange sock he would do it
2: <laughs> right
1: if you, after training he'd stay on mm-hmm. he was humble he was quiet uh, and also very quietly he looked after some of the indian boys you know, on the okay. quiet because he you know, he's obviously on a great salary yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, but He worked. And Mm -hmm. I always remember one game, he he shouldn't have played, he was injured, but he says, I'm playing, I am playing. And he played, he was playing on one leg. In the end, we we took him off the last, say, 30 minutes to go. And he could have just gone to the dressing room, sat there, got changed, whatever. No, he put a bib on, sat on the bench, Mm -hmm. and was screaming with the lads to hold on, hold on to this victory we had. And I always remember at the end, he probably never been on the bench before. He jumped and smashed his head on the on the glass <laughs> bench. But but he was a great bloke. I mean, mm-hmm. and we had a centre back there, a German, and I had to look at his name, and I thought I googled him, and the first thing that came up because I hadn't heard of him, the first thing that came up was a picture of him marking Ronaldo. <laughs> wow! <laughs> In the Champions League, he had been play, he's playing for Dortmund, and he turned out he was a an ex roommate of Jurgen Klopp's. Uh, oh wow! Yeah, yeah, but and again, I looked at this blog when he was playing, and I thought he never misses a header. Mm-hmm. He never has to tackle. He yeah. steps in front. He's never got his shorts dirty. Uh, I mean, he was just an outstanding defender.
2: Nice.
1: Again, I've only seen one better defender, and that was your Milan boy Berezi.
2: Okay, I, I, wow! I, I, Haven't okay. watched
1: him in the flesh. Yeah, you know, watching how he worked and how he coached yeah. and how he did things. Barese was on a different planet to me. I mean, it's uh, to me, there's only one, they say the best footballer in the world. To me, it's Maradona.
3: Yes. That's it. Yeah, I think but, I'm, yeah. But, but to yeah. me,
1: Barese was the next, he was the best footballer. Yeah. I don't count Maradona as a footballer. Yeah. I count of him as something.
3: <laughs> something uh, different. Absolutely, yeah, 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 you know? yeah, yeah.
1: And again, lucky enough, I, when I was in Australia, Argentina played Australia and I was mm-hmm. you, with the national squ- squad wow. then. And I saw him train live. And wow. again, there is nothing like him. Yeah, you, know, you could spend the whole day talking about Maradona. How, yeah. how good he was! Again, how good he was, and how mm. he was loved by his own people, and how he signed autographs and took photographs. Never complained. No. <clears throat> Smashing. Yeah.
3: Yeah, he's a he, well. It's it's beyond a cultural icon. Like I've I've been lucky enough to go down to Naples, and I'm planning on going down again. And when you realise mm. just how much he's a symbol of that city, he's kind of gone beyond football, I think, Maradona. But yeah, his ability, I think, even with the Messi debate now, I think Maradona is still from a different yes, planet, just yeah, on a different yeah. level. I'd um, like to have
1: seen Di Stefano as well. Uh, mm. To me, the three best players ever have been Argentinians. Yeah, Messi, Argent- Di Stefano and Diego. Can
3: you, can you imagine being Argentinian? All of those oh. players coming from your country. Yeah, we yeah. just need one from England would yeah, be nice. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> just one. But, so we're going to kind of wrap up a little bit because I'm aware of time. So currently, or most recently, you were with the Laos national team. You kind of talked about it um, a little bit. When I kind of have one question here, but when you're in a continent with such big countries or kind of powerhouses such as South Korea and Japan, what were your, long, what were your short and long-term aims with the Laos national team?
1: Well, like I said, long-term aims is the next game. Okay. You know, yeah, you right. But, okay. you know, if, if I'm being sort of uh, philosophical, I would say mm-hmm. the long term aim was to, to close the gap. Okay. Now, in Lao's case, it was to close the gap on Vietnam and Thailand.
3: Okay.
2: Uh, yes.
1: Because we weren't going to close the gap on Korea and Japan. No, no, no. Not yet. Uh, if I was in Thailand, when I was in Thailand, it was to close the gap to Japan okay. and Korea. Mm-hmm. That was a level. Uh, I mean, I think if it, I put it in perspective, the lad who marked Son Hun Ming, mm-hmm. he was on $200 a month playing for his club a month. And he used to get up at 5 a.m. in the morning, go and get the vegetables, bring it back to his mum, sell it on the on the market with her, go to bed in the afternoon, and then come and train at night at 5 o'clock. We had to have national team training at 5 o'clock because... They all worked.
3: They're all working. Yeah.
1: yeah. And and to get them off, I mean, it used to be hilarious. The lads used to laugh about it. They'd say, you know, I wonder what bonus we'll get? Because sponsors would give us a, a million dollars right. bonus to be Korea. Well, it may as well have been 20 million because <laughs> yeah. it wasn't going to happen.
2: Yeah, <coughs> you know, yeah, yeah.
1: You know, I mean, it's – and people – and it was really funny. I had a bloke tell me all about the tactics we did against Korea. I said, we didn't have any tactics. I said, I said, we just couldn't get out of our own half. Right. I actually looked 29th minute was the first time their goalkeeper touched it. Wow. And I I, I my centre forward was the Lao sprint champion as well. Okay. And I left, I said, look, we played 10 at the back right. and one up front. And I said, when we get it, just welly just it rub. as far as you can. You know, yeah. uh, <laughs> yeah. And and I, it, it happened once. We got it. We knocked it behind the centre back. And my lad set off. And not only that, their centre-back set off three yards behind him, caught him, threw him a dummy, and then <laughs> passed the <laughs> ball out. And I thought, nope, we ain't going to happen. And it doesn't matter what tactics you have when someone like Son Hun Ming just pushes the ball past you mm-hmm. and goes. Yeah,
3: yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah, yeah, yeah. So how do, I- you, how do you prepare your team there? Yeah. How do you prepare your players? If they know that, like, there's very little chance you're going to win the game, or there's very little chance you're going yeah. to get something from the game. How do you motivate them? How do you prepare them?
1: Well, the first thing you've got to worry about is that if they know they're going to lose, some of them might decide to lose by a certain score.
3: Okay, and, yes, fair. Yeah. yeah,
1: Four of my first 11 got to spend for life after I'd left. Now, yeah. I knew two of them were fixing, mm-hmm. and I knew there were fixes on the local level, but I couldn't drop them. No. Because they were the two best fullbacks I had.
2: <laughs> okay. By, yeah. by
1: miles. And to be fair, they trained well. They and and as one of them told me later, we won't do it in the big games. We won't do it at home. We'll do it away in friendlies.
3: Okay. <laughs> right. and, and
1: I mean and again, I mean it's like it's kind you, of
3: ethical match fixes. Yes, yeah. kind of uh, <laughs> yeah.
1: because they weren't gonna win anyway. In fact, these lads were losing money. By coming to play for the national team. Right. Because they weren't getting paid to play for the national team. They were only yeah. getting offered bonuses, which were never going to emerge yeah. anyway. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. But it, it is really different. Like I knew we were not we were going to get physically dominated. Because mm-hmm. in the Korean team, they had, they had Key, who was playing for Newcastle, then yeah, yeah, yeah. Son playing for Spurs, yeah. five others in the Bundesliga.
2: Mm-hmm. And there
1: was, there was only one Korean player in the K League <laughs> player. Yeah. So and I said to the, the, the coach, I said, can you not you know stick a couple of reserves out? And he said the same. He, he said, I can't. He said, because if I get beat, it's, it's Asia. If I yeah. get beat by Lao, yeah, yeah. I'm gone.
3: Yeah. He said, yeah, we yeah. gotta
1: win. We survived until the 60th minute. When I say survive, it was about 3-0. Right,
3: okay, right, yeah, right.
1: And and I kept my subs off till then because I knew that after that the petrol was gonna go. And yeah, it was like yeah, watching yeah. a car run out of petrol. The lads just couldn't couldn't yeah, do yeah, anything, yeah. you know. And and the the lad, this is where you go again. Good character. End of the game. Son walked up to me, shook my hand, said, "Thank you, coach. Well done."
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: he said, "Give this shirt to the boy. It was meant to be marking him." I said, "Yeah," wow. you know. And, and he laughed. He said, "I know what he was trying to do because I told him <laughs> kick son on the halfway line."
2: Because yeah, I yeah, thought
1: yeah. I thought don't do it close to the goal because they'll score a free kick. Yeah. I said, "Do it on the halfway line." I said, he might want to go off then, because got playing for Spurs at the weekend. He yeah, might yeah. not fancy this. But the lad said to me, after, he said, coach, I couldn't get near him.
3: <laughs> you know? yeah, he was gone before I saw him. Yeah, yeah. yeah I
1: yeah. mean, it did put it in perspective. When I played for Tranmere in the youth team, we played Liverpool in the in Liverpool youth. And the opening, the comment from the coach was, kick that big-nosed something <laughs> in the Liverpool team. Well, the big-nosed something was Phil Thompson. Right, you no, know, <laughs> was playing center midfield, and I suddenly realized there I was, yeah. and there's the next level mm-hmm. because there was like a force field around him, you couldn't get near him, you know, and they battered us. Uh, yeah, yeah. and I saw so I, that always stuck in my head, even when I was like a 17 year old playing, I thought, oh, there's, there's, a, there's a new level, there's you know, levels, it's, uh, yeah, 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 and there's like it's like cricket, you know, yeah. I've played against in India. We played against some of the top cricketers for because both Peter and Reed and I loved cricket. Yeah. We yeah. play against some of the big boys there. Oh, it wasn't the same game. No, no. <laughs> no. Spin spinners who were like fast medium to me. Yeah. 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 Yeah.
3: yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> nice. Well, Steve, that's been absolutely fascinating. Before we go, we like to ask a few kind of quick fire questions before yeah, we sure. let you go. So the first question is going to be: the best player that you've coached
1: uh Nicholas and Elka
3: mm-hmm. or
1: a goalkeeper called Hamoud Sultan in Bahrain uh very few people would have heard of him but every Bahraini would have heard of him he okay. was just a freak of nature didn't train used to have a Cadillac uh for <laughs> nice, his house I like had, it but his house had goats <laughs> okay <nice. laughs> had goats in the courtyard
3: I, lo- yeah. I love this guy already yeah okay um the best player that you've come up against
1: uh in terms of, as a younger player, it would have been either Phil Thompson or mm-hmm. Steve Koppel. Though okay. i played also with Steve Koppel.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, watching Brian Robson play for the Thai national team reserves against the first team, you realise he might have been a decent player as well. <laughs> <laughs> he was 56 at the time. Wow. <laughs> uh, wow. Again, another superb bloke on and off the pitch. Same as Reedy. These they're, they're not big, they could be big headed, they could be arrogant, yeah, yeah. they're not they're just decent blokes who nice. you sit down, you can have a beer with them, cup of tea, whatever. Yeah, you know, and they love football, both of them. Yeah,
2: nice. uh,
1: so in those terms, but uh, there's been, there's been some, there was a player in the Malaysian league, I don't even remember his name, but he played in the World Cup for Cameroon, okay. uh, in the, the, the you know, about two years before. Oh, different level. Different
3: nice. level, yeah. Nice. Um, the the best atmosphere you've witnessed as a co- as a manager, like the a game or an atmosphere that you'll never forget.
1: Um, Iran, Iran against Thailand, nil nil. About five minutes to go, I turned around, looked at Brian Robson, and said, "I hope we lose," because there would have was about a hundred thousand blokes with moustaches. Uh, <laughs> And we were surrounded by blokes with guns. And I thought, oh, dear me. You know, <laughs> that was scary. But uh, there was also 100,000 at the cup final in mm. uh, Malaysia Cup final in, in with Parak. Uh, that was fantastic. Mm. Uh, I mean, it, it's just once you get that those numbers in, it, yeah. the whole game changes. It's mm-hmm. like a, it goes on in slow motion in some cases.
3: yeah. yeah. Beautiful. Well, thank you, Steve. That was great. I, that was absolutely fascinating. I really enjoyed that. Thanks for coming on to the show. Um, viewers and listeners, don't forget to hit the like and subscribe button at the bottom, and we will see you next time in the next episode of our Away From Home series. Thanks again, Steve.
2: Podcast Network.